0: morning. Good to be with you today. Oh, it's a great, it's beautiful, this weather that we've been having, and it's good to be uh, in the house of the Lord. I hope that during this series of revival, God has been speaking to you. I've just been reflecting over the last several weeks and just how um, I believe that God has been really confronting us with some very heavy and important truth. And I hope during that time that uh, you have been able to receive from him, that you've heard him speak to you, and that You've been able to, to find that life that only he uh, can bring. We are coming to uh, near an end of this part of our series <clears throat> on revival. I've told you that uh, this year our theme is revival, uh, but as I've been preparing and looking at uh, this series, I realized that um, I needed to break it up into two because, you know, Easter is coming and we need to, we need to have a series around Easter. And so uh, next week we are going to be having communion together and it will be our last Sunday for the, this part of the revival uh, series. And then we're going to start a series on March 8th. Uh, it's called Dying Declarations. And it is going to review uh, the seven things that Jesus said from the cross. It's going to be really, really uh, neat and exciting. Uh, I think we're going to learn a lot. And God's going to continue to speak to us. And then after that series, uh, we'll go into another series about experiencing revival. So this series is around Revive All has been about like what is revival, what are the requirements for revival, what are God's expectations around revival, and then after Easter, we're going to talk about how do we experience revival in our, own, in our own lives, in our relationships, in our homes, in our families, in our community. So God is going to continue to speak uh, to us through that. Uh, last week, we did talk about how uh, we can recognize that God is getting ready to bring revival, that he will shake things up. And God says that, you know, in that, in that message, we talked about how we will see God fulfill his promises when we fix our eyes on him instead of our circumstance. Remember, he spoke through the prophet Haggai, and he told the people, uh, basically, he said, fear not, continue working, do uh, what I have told you to do because I am with you, because I'm getting ready to shake things up. And so he wanted them to understand, like, not to look at their circumstance and be discouraged, but know that he was with them and that as they watched him, instead of their circumstance, they would see his promises fulfilled. We know that God will shake things up to keep things from us or to shake things loose for us. But we need to figure out what kind of shaking we're experiencing. <clears throat> we said that we, it could be a, a chapter 1, Haggai 1 uh, shakeup where he is sh- shaking things up to keep things from us because we're not prioritizing his presence. Or it could be a Haggai 2 uh, shakeup where we have been obedient and we are surrendering to God and then he's shaking things up to bring new things or bring a new thing into our life. We know that we cannot have our hope in the promise, but we must have our hope in the promise maker. That oftentimes when we are going through a difficult circumstance, the fulfillment of God's promise would feel like it was at jeopardy or, it, or at risk. But like Abraham, we need to do exactly what he did and lay the fulfillment of our promise on the altar as a sacrifice of worship to God, trusting that he will do more than we could ever imagine. And then we talked about how God can use our shaky situation to secure our place and our role in his unshakable kingdom. We talked about how he used Rahab and her submission to him to, one, secure uh, Israel's entry into Jericho, but also her place in that kingdom and then her role uh, you know, fe- becoming a future grandmother of Jesus. And so uh, it's a great understanding for us to work through. But as I've been reflecting, you've kind of heard me tell the story of where we've gone, because I think it tells a very important progression. We started out with the series, in the series talking about the fact that we need revival— and then we understood the requirements of revival, and then we said, well, based on those things, we know that now is the time to live revived, and I have to live revived. It's not something that I just am revived, and then I, have, I want to expect revival again later. Rather, I want to live in God's life from now on. And I can't put that off. It comes now, and then last week, it's okay. Well, now that I know that now is the time for revival, how do I recognize that revival is coming? And today, I want to talk about God's order for revival. You know, I am certainly guilty of telling God how he can bless me. I am guilty of saying, okay, God, these are the things that are on my list. Like, it's a grocery list. And it's, okay, God, this is, you know, I want you to do this on Monday. I want you to do this on Tuesday. If you could do it by noon every day, that'd be amazing. Because then I could just, you know, be there and bless the rest of my day. I don't think that I'm the only one that does that. I'm judging by your reaction. But um, <clears throat> the thing is, we can't do that, Right? If I, I mean, we know, right, that if we are dead and we need revival, then we are unqualified to determine the terms on which we are then made alive, right? And so let us take some time and surrender to God this morning. Let us lay, our, let us lay down our order, our will, the things that we want God to do in our life, and surrender to his plan. Let us surrender to his order, the things that he would want to introduce into our lives to Bring revival. Father, we come to you today. God, I give this time to you. I give myself, I give my my voice, my thoughts, my spirit, my soul, everything. I submit to you. Lord, I surrender this pulpit, I surrender this stage, I surrender everything. God, I just pray that you would speak to your people today. Let them hear you, let them see you. Let your spirit be so thick in this place that we cannot deny that we were in your presence, Lord. But even more than just acknowledging that you were here, Lord, let us respond to your presence and connect. Father, we all bring things with us. Distractions, burdens, challenges. We lay those at your feet. We give them to you, God. Our own plans, God, we lay them down. I don't want my plan I don't want any other man's plan. God, I want your plan. And we just pray, Lord, that you reveal that plan to us and so that through this time and through your word being spoken, that we will hear from you and let us with ears hear what you are saying, God, and respond. Change us today, God. Let not one of us leave the same way that we came. We thank you for this, Lord, and we thank you for your spirit in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I mentioned, when we recognize that we need revival, it's because there is something that is dead. And if there is a need of revival, what that means is part of our walk, part of our life with God uh, is is dead, where his presence isn't being manifest, where his power isn't being demonstrated. And we are not qualified then to determine the terms in which we experience revival. We are not qualified to say, okay, God, this is how I need to experience life although what we do is say god bring hope god bring peace god bring life i need revival god make me revive revive me lord revive me lord revive me lord i want you to know that when you when you pray like that god sees you and he hears you where you are and in fact he agrees that you need revival but what he says to you this morning as he says, I'm not going to bring the hope, I'm not going to bring the peace, I'm not going to bring the life that comes with revival until I bring brokenness, until I bring surrender, until I bring repentance, until I see and bring transformation. Because it's in those things that revival occurs. The issue and challenge that I think we we walk in is that many of us want a discount God. We want God on sale. Right? We want God with the blessing without the requirement. We want the benefits without the cost. We want the, the revival without brokenness. We want revival. We want life without surrender. Why would God give us his life if we don't surrender ours to him? How can we expect to go from a place of death into a place of life without transformation? It's impossible. So we need to realize that God's order for revival is what we need to walk in. Because we would say, well, I just want to walk in the good things and not the bad. Well, God uses those circumstances to make us ready for revival, to make us dependent on him in all situations. You see, if we are only going after the blessing, if we only want the good things, we become like the people that Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 30. He said, for they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers or the prophets, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. You see, Isaiah is confronting the people because they are telling their prophets, those men that would speak on behalf of God, don't tell us the truth, don't bring us bad news, only tell me good things, only make me feel good. In fact, I don't wanna hear about the Holy One of Israel anymore. In the NIV it actually says stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Let me tell you something. I will never stop confronting you with the Holy One of Israel if I do fire me that day. I'm serious. I'm serious. Because the situation, you might say, well, John, that, that's the Old Testament. That, Isaiah's talking to the Israelites. He's not talking to me. Well, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Because Paul writes to Timothy and he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Does it sound familiar? I mean, there are definite similarities between what we read in Isaiah and this, this word in, in 2 Timothy But Paul isn't just writing about that time in Isaiah, nor is he just writing to Timothy to say, hey, you need to be ready as a young pastor that you're going to experience this. I think Paul's talking about today. Because even, even in the church, we want to reject truth. Even in the church, we only want to hear what makes us Feel good. God, forgive us for rejecting your truth. Forgive us for seeking people that only teach us the things we want to hear instead of bringing the words that bring brokenness and surrender and repentance. God, forgive us. God's order in revival is the only order that we must pursue. And we see an illustration of this in First Kings chapter 18. And as we go through it today, I hope that you see what's happening in the, in the order that God has for us in revival. Starting out in verse 1, it says, After many days of the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now, to understand this verse and the story in more context, it's important for us to know what's going on. At the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah had gone to Ahab at that time and said, King, it is not going to rain until I say it will. And so at this point between 1 Kings 17 and 1 Kings 18, uh, it had been three years and it had not rained one time. Things were very, very bad. So bad in fact that in uh, 1 Kings 17, Elijah had gone to a place in Zarephath and there was a widow there who was preparing to make her final meal for her son and herself they would eat the meal and then die of hunger and dehydration. Elijah shows up and says, why don't you make that meal for me instead? I was telling the first service, like, how much audacity would I have to come to your house and say, I know you don't have anything in the fridge, but, you know, what you do have, you need to make a meal for me. Right? I mean, you would probably look at me sideways. But this woman, she, she did what Elijah did, uh, said because he said, if you do this, you will not run out of flour, you will not run out of oil. And she did not until the famine was over. But it is such a, a, a bleak situation. We need to understand why God said, I'm not going to send the rain. In Deuteronomy 11, we see and understand it. We get an explanation of why. It says, take care, lest your heart be deceived. And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the land will yield no fruit. And you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. That kind of sounds like the message God spoke through Haggai that we talked about a couple weeks ago. But when we look at this, the reason that God had shut the heavens down, the reason that there was no rain was because of idolatry. The people were worshiping other gods. They were worshiping Baal and Asherah in addition to God Almighty. And you would think that by this time in history, that, you know, God gave this word in Deuteronomy, and here we are in 1 Kings. And you would think that by this time they would have learned This lesson. You would think also that we would have learned this lesson. You know, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that the whole reason we have the Old Testament, the purpose behind it, is so that we might learn from the examples of those who have gone before us. But the issue or the lesson that we need to see here is that idolatry, when we pursue something outside of God to meet our needs that cuts off God's prevention or intervention in our life. And this is a lesson that we need to understand. In fact, I'm, I'm intrigued because God said to Elijah, go to Ahab because I am going to send rain. Well, it hadn't rained for three years. And you might say, well, God, it hasn't rained for three years. If you're ready to send rain, send the rain, right? Like, just send the rain. But God said, no, no. I'm going to send the rain. I'm prepared to send the rain, but I'm only going to do that in my order and in my timing. He says to Elijah, he says you go to King Ahab. Now this was not an easy thing for Elijah to do. Because in 1 Kings 17 he went to Elijah and said or he went to Ahab and said it's not going to rain until I say so. And Ahab's wife Jezebel, she made it her life's work to kill all the prophets of God. And so Elijah, God is saying, I want you to go to the king that you said it's not going to rain, whose wife is out to kill you, and I want you to present yourself to them. Now, any normal person would look at that as a dangerous situation. Elijah even goes and he finds another prophet named Obadiah, and he says, Obadiah, God has told me to go see Ahab. I want you to go before me and tell Ahab that I'm coming. And Obadiah says, No, like that's not a good idea. He says, Ahab, like he he, he doesn't like you. He, he's out to get you. Jezebel has tried to kill all the prophets. If I go and say that you're coming, and then you don't show up, you go off in hiding, he's gonna kill me. Elijah says, No, I I'm 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 in earnest. You you go. I will be there. And so Obadiah goes. But then we can understand Ahab's reaction when he sees Elijah in verse 17. Because when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel. This is Elijah speaking now. I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So Ahab calls Elijah the troubler of Israel. Because again, in Ahab's eyes, it's Elijah's fault that there isn't any rain. It's Elijah's fault that there is a famine. He's the one that said that it wouldn't rain. New rain is dependent on Elijah, you know, saying it would rain. So Ahab, he just doesn't want to see Elijah. You're the troubler of Israel. But Elijah, he rightly refuses to accept the blame for this. He says, Ahab, I am not the troubler of Israel. You are. You and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of God and you have worshiped other gods. You see, what what God is calling Elijah to do and what we must do in the first step of revival is to confront sin because God will not send revival until we confront the sin. The issue is, you know, while Jezebel was out to kill all of the prophets of God, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah dined with them every day. And so here is Ahab and Jezebel. And they are perpetuating a situation of idolatry and sin in the nation. And and God says, we have to confront this sin. We see this in James. It says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So the first step, the first step in God's order and process of revival is confronting sin. But before you try to interrupt my message and go talk to that person in church that you want to talk to about their sin and you want to confront them in that place, or before you pull out your phone and start putting a scathing post on Facebook, or before you start planning a phone call to your relative about their sin in their life, let me remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew. He said, do not go to your neighbor, do not go to your friend to pull the speck out of their eye until you pull the plank out of yours. You see, when we talk about confronting sin, yes, we need to confront sin. But the Bible says that we do that by speaking the truth in love. It says that no, let no uh, unedifying word come out of your mouth. So if there is sin to be addressed, we must address it, but we speak it in a way that builds the other person up and leads them to repentance. But our focus is not externally first. Our focus must be internally first. I must look at sin in my own life. I must confront sin in my own life, and I have to call it sin in order for God to bring the reign of revival. And that is what God is telling Elijah to do. You go to Ahab, and you confront the sin that is happening. I want to just address for a moment Ahab's failure as a leader. He's a king. He's a Jew. He knew what was right. He knew that the things that his wife was doing, he knew the way that he was leading his people into idolatry was against the law of God. And he did it anyway. Because of his decisions, a culture of idolatry perpetuated across the entire nation. My question for you this morning is what kind of culture are you creating in your home, and who else is paying the price for it? Because Ahab made a decision. Ahab chose to worship the other gods. Ahab chose to lead his people away from the Lord, and because of his choice, his entire nation suffered. Think about all of the people that died because Ahab chose to worship other gods. Every single one of you is a leader. Husbands, you are leading in your home. Wives, in submission to your husband, you are also a leader in your home. You have children, you have family members, you have friends, grandparents, you have grandchildren and great grandchildren. You have people that look up to you. There are people in this church. There are people on your job. There are people in your neighborhood that know you are a Christian. What kind of culture are you perpetuating around you? And who else is paying the price for your decision? In Luke, Jesus said, you're either gathering the harvest or you're spreading the harvest. Now you gather harvest and you spread seed. So when Jesus says that you are either gathering the harvest or spreading the harvest, what he's saying is you are either working for me or against me. And so in our own lives, we must make a decision. We must look and and reflect and say, is what I am doing leading those around me to Jesus or away from him? Because they will pay a price for your decision. So after Elijah confronted Ahab, he tells Ahab, he says, okay, I want you to bring the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah. I want you to take them up to Mount Carmel, and I will meet you there, and we will see who is God. But when they got there, instead of just allowing the, the the, the confrontation to occur, Elijah draws the people to him, and he addresses them. Says Elijah came near to all the people and said, "How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him." And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah says to the people, "You need to make a choice. You need to choose right here and now who is God. Is it Baal or is it Jehovah?" He says, quit limping between two opinions. Quit hesitating. Quit vacillating. Quit going back and forth. Decide right now who you're going to worship. But they refused to make a choice. They were silent. They chose to not answer. And a choice of silence is a choice against God. So you might say, well, why did they refuse to choose? It it, it comes down to an issue of idolatry. It comes down to an issue of worldliness. You see, the culture of the world was worshiping other gods, and the people said, well, I need gods. I need more than one god. And so they would worship Jehovah, and they would worship these other idols. And you know what they would do is they were were bifurcating their faith, which means they were separating their faith so that, you know, I'm going to worship God, and then then the rest of the time I'm going to worship these other gods and live the way that I want to. They said, well, I'm going to go to church on Sunday and pretend that everything's okay and that I'm a Christian, I'm going to look like a Christian, and the rest of the week when nobody else sees me, I'm going to look like the world. This is the culture that was happening in the nation of Israel. Elijah says, make a choice. The people said, well, we don't want to make a choice because when we worship Baal and Asherah, they allow us to indulge in our sin. There's no holiness with them. There's no rules with them. There's no requirements to to look at my own sin and acknowledge it as sin with them. So choosing God would have meant a disruption in their enjoyment of sin. But that enjoyment is only fleeting. As Paul says, what benefit do we gain from those things that that we are now ashamed of? Those things that only lead to death. They refused to make a choice. They knew what God had done in their history. And yet they look at all of that and say, well, you know what? We still want to worship other gods. They wanted to allow for that indulgement of sin. And then additionally, I mean, Baal, he was responsible for making the harvest grow. He's not doing a very good job, at least for the last three years. Cause there's no rain, but they still worship him, you know, just in case they needed a plan B, you know, cause what if God doesn't, what if God doesn't provide? Listen, if God is your plan A, you should not have a plan, a plan B. I'm not going to say you don't need one. I'm going to say you shouldn't have one because if you have one, what it means is you're not really secure in your plan A. And that's, that's the condition of the hearts of the people. As they said, well, you know, just in case God doesn't meet our need, we need somebody else. The problem is they're not acknowledging the infinite nature of God's character. Because if, if Baal was there, what that means is if they needed Baal, that meant that God was inadequate in some way. Well, I don't know about you, but my God is, is he will meet all of my needs according to his riches and glory. He is more than sufficient for me. And they're refusing to acknowledge that. The Bible tells us time and time and time again that we must make a choice. And Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. And he says, Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Matthew 6, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. In James 1, James is, is writing, and he's telling the people, if you lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom. But if you ask without believing that God will meet your need, you are double-minded. You are double-minded. Because what that means is if I ask God, if I take a need to him, and I am not believing that he will meet that need, then in my mind I'm thinking about something else that will meet that need. I need to be completely confident in God's ability to provide. In James 4 8, he says that we have to purify our hearts from double mindedness. He also helps us understand what that double mindedness looks like. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or you know, a conflict with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Elsewhere in 1 John 2, it says that anyone who loves the world, the love of God is not in him. In Titus, it says that we are to renounce ungodliness and worldliness. This is where the nation of Israel found themselves. Part of them wanting to worship God, but not enough that they would abandon their worldliness. Not enough that they would change their lives. They're wanting to go back and forth between one and the other. And because they refused to make a choice they were not useful or they were not useful to God or used by him they were just there but we can't think that the consequence for them is unique to them because in revelation chapter 3 God writes through Jesus to the prophet John in that book a letter to the church in Laodicea and he says because you are neither hot nor cold because you are not useful to me You make me want to puke. I want to throw up because when I look at you, you're not making a choice. I can't use you. You see, we must make a choice. We must choose God today. The people weren't ready to make a commitment because they had lost sight of God and his power. In addition to wanting to continue to indulge in their sin, there was some fear. Because Jezebel, like I said, was out to kill the prophets of God. And so choosing God or siding with Elijah was siding against Jezebel and could incite her wrath. And so there's an element of fear and they refuse to stand up to the culture around them. Makes me think about jellyfish. I I love nature shows. I've told you that I'm a nerd. You probably can't tell, but I'm wearing math socks today. And it's not my only pair of math socks, by the way. So, like, I love nature shows, and I subject my family to them. I like to think that my children like to watch them, but they don't have control of the remote, so they just have to watch them. At night, we will sit and watch and kind of wind the twins down while we're doing it. I think it comes because I watched nature shows a lot with my dad when I was a child. But anyways, if you ever watch a nature show about the ocean, inevitably you're going to learn about jellyfish. And the thing with jellyfish is they have no spines. They can't stand up to the current. And instead of standing up to the current, they, they just have to go with the current. And so my fear is that as Christians, we have refused to stand up to the culture of this world. Rather, we have moved with the culture of this world. We have refused to make a stand for Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, that if you, if you refuse to stand for me in front of man, I will refuse to stand for you in front of God. I know it's not a shout-me-down kind of sermon today, but it's true. Paul, he warns about this kind of worldliness in Romans chapter 12. He says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. So basically, everything that you do is an offering of worship to the Lord. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Listen to these words. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. I'm going to say that one more time. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognize what he wants from you, and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, developing well-formed maturity in you. So we are warned that we cannot fit into our culture without even thinking. How do we know that we have fallen into this trap? I want you to look back over the last seven days. We do this from time to time. I want want you to, to think about what you did. I want you to think about where you went. I want you to think about what you said. What did you watch on TV? What did you listen to? What did you look at on the internet? What did you post on social media? What are the words that you spoke to your wife? How did you treat your children? How did you treat your neighbor? How did you treat that person that cut you off in traffic? How did you like, think about that, that one person that you just struggle in relationship with? Do these things reflect the culture of God's kingdom or do they reflect the world? Would you have been excited or embarrassed if I was walking with you or following you everywhere you went this week? How does it make you feel to know that even though I wasn't doing that, Jesus was? This is how we know whether or not we are following or, or perpetuating the culture of the world or the, or, the, or the culture of the kingdom. I don't know about you. There are times in my life where my attitude, my frustration, my anxiety, it gets the best of me. And in those moments, instead of realizing that Jesus is with me to help me, I hurt him in that place by acting in my flesh instead of running to him. You see, in that place, listen, anxiety and worry and and attitude and frustration, listen, you know what? It doesn't surprise God that you have them. It doesn't shock him that you struggle with those things. The whole reason that Jesus is with you is so that you can go to him in those moments of struggle. In those moments of temptation and iniquity, the whole thing that we can do is cry out to the Holy Spirit, help me. But too often we give in to our flesh. We act like the world instead of pursuing God. I wonder what would have happened if the people had chosen. You know, because they hadn't, you know, the, the prophets of Baal hadn't gone yet. Elijah hadn't called fire down from heaven yet. He just wanted the people to make a choice. I wonder what would have happened if they had said, God is the Lord. I wonder. But no, they were silent. And they refused to choose. So after they refused to choose, it was the prophets of Baal. And they get up. And now, guys, it's early in the morning. And they start, and this is actually one of the most amusing passages of Scripture to me. Because at noon, you know, Baal hasn't responded yet. So probably like four hours have gone by, at least. And nothing, as you would expect. No fire. And so Elijah sits back and he begins to mock the prophets of Baal. He says, you might need to shout louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's off helping someone else. Maybe he's on vacation. He actually says, maybe he's in the restroom. Maybe he's asleep. I mean, Elijah is just mocking them and making fun of them and and taunting them, goading them. And it continues on until the evening. Another six hours. They are so impassioned in- with what they are trying to do. They are cutting themselves and dancing and shouting and nothing. Nothing. And Elijah says at the, at the time of the evening sacrifice, he says, okay, it's my turn. But, but what we have to see and notice is that even in that moment, Elijah didn't just step forward and say, okay, God, send the fire. Okay, God, send the rain. There's still an order to what God is getting ready to do. Elijah does a very important thing in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. This is a critical step. Because in these years, the altar was was thrown down, it was torn down, it wasn't together. Elijah had confronted the sin with Ahab, but the altar being torn down shows that there was nothing to address the sin. You see, before Adam and Eve sinned, when they were in the garden, they had direct communication, direct connection with God. God they sinned and now they had to have a mediated connection with God. There had to be an animal or sacrifice of blood that was shed so that their sin could be covered and they could now be restored into connection with God. For you and I, our mediator is Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross. His perfect sacrifice covers all of us once and for all. But for them, the altar represented the place where sin was addressed. So, in, in this time when the altar is torn down, they are not addressing their sin. They're not even thinking that their sin needs to be addressed. They're not even, like, they're, they're continuing to worship, but not addressing their sin. And so in that place, what we need to realize is we can worship, but if we don't address sin in our worship, our worship means nothing, and it accomplishes nothing. So Elijah says we have to rebuild the altar, you got to put it back together so that we can sacrifice the animal so that blood could be shed and the connection that God desires to have with you can be restored because it can't happen until the sin is addressed. But there's something that we need to understand. You see, Elijah, he takes 12 stones, the 12 stones that were there, and he begins to rebuild the altar. And the, the altar, when it was originally built, had 12 stones, one stone for each tribe of Israel. But at this time in their history, they were a nation divided. There were 10 tribes in the north and two in the south and two separate kingdoms. And Elijah says, no, we're going to use 12 stones. Because it's at the altar where a place of unity can happen where division once ruled. I mean, I could preach for a few, few weeks on that. But let's just, let's apply it to today. In our walk with God, it is at the altar Where there once was division, that unity can happen. Because at the altar, I am addressing my sin. I am calling it sin. I am repenting of sin. But also, I know that some of you might be in here today struggling in your marriage, struggling with your relationship with your children, struggling with your relationship with others. Take that person, take that relationship to the altar. Because it's at the altar where unity can rule, where division once ruled. Because when you bring that relationship to God, you are putting God in his rightful place in that relationship. And he can bring revival. We need to understand that. We need to recognize that. So in that place, Elijah, he rebuilt the altar. And then... He takes the oxen, he sacrifices the oxen, blood has been shed. Sin is being addressed. And then he does something that honestly in the situation might sound stupid. He says, go get some water. You see, Baal, he was also the the god of fire. And so Elijah chooses a medium that, you know, would have been easy for Baal. And and, and Elijah says, you know, we're going to make it hard on God. Bring me some water. And so they get some, some pots and while they're getting them, there's a trench that's dug around the altar and they pour water on the, on the sacrifice. And Elijah says, that's not enough water. Go get some more. So they go and they go get more water. And they come and they pour the water over the sacrifice a second time. And Elijah says, that's still not enough water. Go get some more water. And they bring more water until water is just overflowing the trench and then Elijah prays. He prays a simple prayer in verses 36 through 39, and I want to read it to you. At the time of the offering of the oblation, or the evening offering, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and you have turned their hearts back, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. He is God. We look at this and we see first Elijah's prayer. How did Elijah pray? He was entreating God to glorify his name, right? He wasn't saying, God, send the fire just because. He wasn't saying, God, send the rain because we're in a famine. He says, God, send fire to show these people that you are God. Glorify your name. So in in the times where we are desperate for revival, when we are looking for the rain that God has promised, our prayer cannot be focused on ourself. Our prayer must be focused on glorifying God. God, glorify your name. You know that when we worship God in the difficult circumstances, chains can be shaken loose. Think about Paul and Silas, midnight, worshiping God. You see, when we go to God and glorify his name in the middle of a difficult circumstance, he's gonna move. And so God sends the fire and it says that the people in that moment, they make the choice. They see and they cannot deny. So they bow their heads, they bow their faces and they say, the Lord, he is God. And verses 40 and 41 says that God then empowered Elijah to to kill all of the prophets that were there. One man killed 850 people. And then he began to pray. And as he was praying, he tells his servant, go to the edge of the mountain. Look over to the ocean. Tell me what you see. And the servant comes back and he says, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. And Elijah says, go back one more time. And he goes and the, the report is that it, things are beginning to, 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 to move and there's like atmospheric trouble and there are clouds and a storm is brewing because God is ready to send the rain. Because sin was confronted. Because sin was addressed. Because the people chose him over the world. And in that time, so maybe you are here today Maybe you are praying for the rain. My question is, are you, are you praying according to the process? Have you responded to God's order? Have you confronted the sin in your own life? Have you addressed it and called it sin? Recognize that addressing sin is more than just confessing sin. See, when we repent, I can't just acknowledge that I have sinned with the full knowledge and awareness that as soon as I say amen, I'm going back to my sin. Because God knows the heart. He knows what is happening. Like revival doesn't happen with transformation. And so if I go to God and say, God, bring life, bring life to my situation. But by the way, I'm not going to change the way that I live. We're going to be praying for a long time without the answer. Because God says we must repent. I have to do more than confess. I have to address the sin. I have to change the way that I live. In Romans 12, it says that we must offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. So that altar that is needs to be rebuilt, do you need to rebuild it in your life? And then do you need to climb back out on to the altar and give your life to God everything that you are and worship to him. And then choose him, and him alone, every time, all the time. And everything that you do, choose him. It can be easy to separate the things of your life into compartments, and to say, well, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna worship God this way, and then in this part of my life, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna rule. You may not even realize that it's happening. This morning, I was preparing. I always, you know, I get up early on Sunday mornings. I um, go downstairs, I get some coffee, and I I start to read through my notes. And I was just praying before I was doing that. And I don't know, just in my prayer, I just felt like God was saying, you're not ready to study yet, John. John. Okay. And so I just was praying and okay, you know, just surrendering and surrendering today and surrendering, you know, the message and and God said, Well, what about your your job? What about what you do at K force? And I was like, Oh. You know, because in my heart I hadn't maliciously said I'm going to take control of that part of my life. I had no intention. Of doing it, But you know what happened? I did. It was just like, okay, well, I, I've got a lot of stuff going on. I've got this, I've got that, I've got this, I've got to do it. And so I just, I'm going to do it with brute strength. I'm going to get it done. And God says, what would happen if you pursued me in that place the way that you pursue me about your work at the church? And he said, it's not, just, it's not about the blessing of what God would do or what I would do in your career, John. It's just about like the peace that you would have in your work. And I was like, man, I hope God doesn't make me say this in my sermon today. And here I am. Because you might think, well, why, why would a pastor stand up and talk about his faults as frequently as ours does? I want you to know that I am on the same path that you are. I want you to know that there is hope that God speaks to me, he corrects me, that you are not alone in the difficult circumstance that you walk in. I want you to know that there there is hope in that place when you respond. My heart is for you to respond to God. My heart is for you to experience his power, his spirit, his life, like you have never experienced it before. I want you to live revived every moment of every day. But I know that that is not easy. And I know that there are things that we all experience. But we still have to make a choice. I have to choose God every day in everything. And so do you. So we're going to sing a song and we're going to pray. And in that time, what altar in your life needs to be rebuilt? I will be here at this altar if you want to come and pray. I will pray with you. I will pray over you. Our deacons and elders will be here to pray with you as well. But hear hear me. Make the choice. Choose God. Confront the sin that is in your life. Let him address it on the altar of the cross of Jesus Christ. And then choose him every day, all day, in everything. Father, we come to you today and we worship you. I thank you, God because you still speak to me. I thank you that you confront me in times where I might feel it was inconvenient, where I was planning on doing something else, God. I thank you that you have an order to the things that you do. I pray that for those that are here today that you would speak to them. The things in our life that don't honor you, Lord, the sin that is there, Confront us with it right now. God, let it, let it just be brought into our, our memory, into our mind in a way that we feel what you feel about our sin. Let us look at our own condition as you would see us in that place. With a broken heart over the sin, but a heart of compassion and love to cover it and wash it away. Not to indulge it, Lord, but to transform us. God, we are here, we are crying out, we want to be revived, we want your power, we want your life to be visited in us and upon us, not just for for our glory, not for our enjoyment, Lord, but so that you might be glorified in this place, so that you might be glorified in our community, so that people will come to know you. (coughs) Help us to respond to you, Lord, to see that sin as you see it, Lord. Let us rebuild the altar that we have torn down. Let us get back on the altar and offer ourselves in worship to you. Let each and every one of us choose you and you alone in everything. God, we love you and we praise you. Whatever work you need to do, God, God, we give you permission to do it now. In Jesus' name, amen.